Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm Bart Sheridan, and today we're digging deeper with Tim Cockrell, discussing Jesus' message to the church there at Sardis, based on our scripture study this past week in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So, Tim, first of all, hey, welcome back. Thanks. Yeah, good to have you back. You re- just returned from spending over a week, what, 10 days? About 10 days, yep. Yeah. Uh, you were in, on a ministry visit there in Eastern Asia. And in relation to our study of the local church that we've been going through here over the past weeks and have several weeks to go, can you give us your perception of the state of the church in the areas you visited? Absolutely. So one of the things that was really encouraging as we traveled there in Southeast Asia is we got to visit with a lot of different nationals from different countries. So there were some other missionaries, people that are Westerners that are serving there. But as we had an opportunity to interact with people from Myanmar, Nepal, Hong Kong, and and Thailand, as well as other places, you got a glimpse of what their day-to-day life was like. And the thing that made that especially remarkable to me is we've been going through these seven churches of Revelation, you know, that Jesus is talking about the distinctive attributes and, and challenges that each of these churches are facing. So, you know, we were talking to, to brothers and sisters that live in Myanmar that just recently went through a military coup. And so there they are seeking to live out the gospel in a predominantly Buddhist nation that is being controlled by the government and yet they are still seeing God do work. They're still faithfully persevering. And so I just am so thankful to know some of those people individually. Like it's one thing to pray for the persecuted church generally or in an abstract way. But when you can think about individual stories and families and churches, I think it helps us to do partnership better, that that it puts names and faces to the prayers that we're praying. It also helps us to to recognize the ways that people are innovating for the message of the gospel. I think many times in the Western church, we can kind of feel like, yeah, we've got it figured out as far as how to do certain things. But if we were to take our methods and just plant them in an Asian context, many times they would fail spectacularly. And so another- even makes sense. Exactly. You know, or would would confuse or even distort the gospel potentially because it lacks that contextualization. And so one of my takeaways from our time there was a recognition I think an exciting one, but not an easy one, that the time for the Western church has come for us to be sitting in the passenger seat rather than the driver's seat, to get behind the vision of the majority world believers that are already leading and innovating, but that still need partners, you know, that need the connection to the global church. But I think it's it's more natural for us to be the problem solvers, the fixers, the innovators. And there's a, a certain level of Christian humility, I think, that it takes to get behind the vision of someone else rather than saying, hey, we're going to come in as the Westerners that have all the answers. So uh, just overall, very encouraged by what God is doing in some very difficult contexts. Tim, you talk about the context of the church over in Eastern Asia. As we've been studying here in the, the seven churches of the Revelation, one of the things that has struck my mind is that in the United States, in particular, where we sit today, our culture here, our, our, our national culture, goes back some 400 years, but it was founded, at least in large part, 
on a Christian basis, mm-hmm. biblical basis. If you look at the Magna or the uh, the uh, Mayflower Compact mm-hmm. and all of everything that came after that, so we were established with a lot of scriptural principles. Not saying we're a Christian country, but sure. these other countries that the gospel has gone to recently. Now there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of movement there during the Apostolic Age, uh, mm-hmm. immediately after the, uh, the the during the early spread of Christianity, but now it's going into a totally pagan culture, and the differences there are amazing culturally. You you reference that, right? They really are, and although it definitely presents some unique challenges, I think it also presents some unique opportunities. You know, for China, for instance, for many years Christians weren't allowed in China, and then in the the mid '80s Christians began to to come in, and then when uh, communism kind of began to to fall there. Many Christians rushed in. But what we're seeing now is Christians, Westerners, are being expelled from the country at the same time that many Chinese are becoming disenfranchised with some of the the political ideologies that are there. And so there's this sense in which the Chinese church is now living out what it looks like to be a national Chinese church in a country that's not Christian in any way, but where people are hungry for the hope that Christ gives. And so, although we don't have a lot of insight as to what the, the statistics are, if you will, the stories that we're hearing are that God is doing a remarkable work there in spite of some intense persecution those believers are experiencing. Fascinating. Well, well let's move into the passage for the week. Uh, we talked about Sardis there in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 3. We call Sardis the dead church, a lot of other uh, colorful illustrations (laughs) we can use and uh, uh, language, but Jesus here speaking specifically about their works. He Mm -hmm. says, I know your works, similar to the way, by the way, he addresses the churches at Ephesus and Thyatira. And it does remind me of James' statement in, in his letter in chapter 2, verse 17. He states that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So conversely, can we also say that works, if they do not have faith, are dead? And I'm thinking, by the way, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. We can talk about that maybe. Is that a, a reasonable small leap? I think it is. You know, when we think about the danger that the Church of Sardis faced, that we ourselves can face, it's the danger of going through the motions to do the right actions but for the wrong reasons. And the group that comes to mind immediately when I think about that are the Pharisees that Jesus addressed. And I think one of the things that... 23. Yep, exactly. One of the things that uh, I think Chris Miller, when we were preaching through the book of Matthew, did a great job of highlighting was that when we think of Pharisees, we usually have a, a more negative perception of them. In that day, it didn't get more spiritual than a Pharisee. Like they were the pinnacle of religious piety. That's where your aspirations went. Exactly. Like if you wanted to be someone in Jewish religious circles, you were aspiring to be like the Pharisees. But what Jesus does in his ministry is he pulls back the curtain to say, in many cases, this is a facade. It looks good from the outside, but it's empty on the inside. You know, he uses that colorful illustration in Matthew 23 of you're like a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, it's it's bright and shiny, but on the inside, there's dead men's bones. And so when we think about, you know, even a church like, like Grace, I think there is a danger 
that we can focus on external appearance and say, as long as we're going through the right motions, doing the right things, that that is the best metric of spiritual health. But over and over again, Jesus warns the right tree produces the right fruit. It has to come from our heart as an overflow. Otherwise, it's really more image and sin management than it is following Christ. And so I referenced uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak human or angelic tongues, speaking specifically about the gifts of the Spirit, uh, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So love, faith, are those interchangeable words? I don't know that I would say they're interchangeable. I would say they're complementary. You know, faith, hope, and love, along with all the other fruits of the Spirit, are the deep spiritual fuel, if you will, that ought to compel us to gospel Mm -hmm. obedience. And I think one of the dangers that, that many evangelical, even I would say fundamentalist type churches are can fall into is that we end up preaching more law than we do grace. Because grace is the fuel that is intended to motivate our obedience. And that if we are obeying God, it's because we love him, because we trust him, because our hope is that he is better than anything that this world has to offer. Not just that we're fearful that if we make the wrong move, Jesus is really going to make us pay. And so I think what Paul's bringing out there in 1 Corinthians 13, as he's specifically talking about dissension and discord within the church, is you can go through all those motions, but if there isn't a heart of love behind it, don't think that Jesus is pleased by it. Just as much as he would say in the Old Testament, I'm not delighted in the blood of bulls and goats. What I desire is mercy rather than sacrifice. When you say love, speak to that love for whom? Yeah, I think ultimately, you know, we go back to the great commandment, you know, that we have to love God ultimately and then love one another selflessly. You know, I I like the definition of love that love is prizing and prioritizing someone or something above ourselves and often at a cost. So if we prize and prioritize God above all else, then we are going to love others in the same way that he has loved us. So it sounds like what you're saying is it is we do have to take stock of why we do what we do uh, as we get uh, closer. We're just a little over a month away from January 1 where we, uh, we tend to evaluate ourselves as a culture. Mm-hmm. Probably good to do that. It's something that we need to be doing on a regular basis right. to, uh, because the danger of drift is always there. The, the danger of kind of spiritually coasting is always right there under the surface. And it's not always immediately detectable. You know, it's not, it's not going to be a sin in the same way that some other sins might be. And I think that's why we need community. That's why we need our spouses. <laughs> that's why we need the truth of God's word and regular rhythms and disciplines there because otherwise it's very easy to begin to drift. And we talked about it last week with, with Becky and Gordon, talked about the idea of discipline. Mm-hmm. And discipline uh, isn't always a fun topic. We think of it often in a negative standpoint, from a negative standpoint, but discipline is good. And that's one of the key uh, things that God gave us the body for. Absolutely. To be disciplined individuals and a disciplined body. Mm-hmm. Well, it reflects our priorities for it sure. It sure does. So you you spoke at some length on Sunday about the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life and how we in many churches like ours, we tend not to attend to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as we do many of the other key doctrines of the scripture. Let's speak and talk a little bit more to why the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is so important 
And what do we lose by not focusing on it and really understanding it, perhaps even internalizing it, mm-hmm. if you will? Yeah, I think when we look at the upper room discourse uh, that Jesus teaches in John 13 through 17, he, he speaks at length about sending another comforter, a paraclete, who will minister to them in the same way that Jesus did. But one of the things he says that's remarkable is, it is better for you if I go, because then the Holy Spirit will come. But I'd rather have Jesus with me right here, well, flesh and blood. Isn't that our natural inclination? Like, no, we want to see the miracles. Like, we want to, to see the, the look in his eyes. But what he's saying is the ministry of the presence of the Spirit internalized in the life of the believer is better than the physical presence of the second person of the Trinity in our midst. If we really begin to understand what that means... I think that then tells us why the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is so important, because it is the source of empowerment for us to do what God has called us to do. It is a source of guidance and truth. It's a source of conviction, because we can't trust our own heart. What we need is the Holy Spirit to to reveal our heart, to remind us of truth, to even pray on, on behalf of us to the Father. And so when you ask the question, what do we lose then by not focusing on it? I think not focusing on the Holy Spirit makes it even more tempting for us to begin to live out the Christian life in a self-sufficient and self-driven kind of way, as if we could do what we're called to do in our own strength by the force of our will or the, the nature of our personality. But when we think about the fact that Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1, don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit comes. Here's you know men that have been trained by Jesus for at least three years, personally instructed and discipled. But he's saying, you can't do this apart from the Holy Spirit. And although the theology gets a little bit challenging for us to, to parse out, Jesus himself would say that his ministry was empowered by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so if Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit and the disciples depended on the Holy Spirit, then what do we lose if we are operating as if the Holy Spirit were a a secondary or unimportant doctrine? Let's go down just a little bit of rabbit trail. This is one of my favorite subjects, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I've got the microphone. Hey, let's go. Talk about the difference of the ministry and the Holy Spirit that we see in the Old Testament versus what we see in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Because... This is really a dynamic, I don't want to say, a shift might be a good word, but it's it's different. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I, I won't be able to, to do it justice for sure. But Yeah, we in, do only have 30 seconds here. Today, <laughs> in the Old Testament, we typically see the Holy Spirit coming on an individual for a, a temporary period of time for a specific task or purpose. So sometimes that would be a, a prophet in order to to speak a word of prophecy. Uh, sometimes it would be uh, an individual who's who's a warrior for the Lord that's that's empowered. Uh, you know, I, I interpret that's what was going on with Samson, for instance. You know, that God's spirit was empowering him to do the the work that he needed to do. But it was always temporary, and, and it was always specific to. A select few individuals. So even in Psalm 51, when we read David's prayer after his sin with Bathsheba, one of his prayers is, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. 
And so that's causes some confusion from some people thinking that they can lose their salvation or something along those lines. But I usually will refer to then the ministry of the Spirit in the Old Testament as the on dwelling of the Holy Spirit. He comes on an individual for a specific time and a specific purpose. Then in the New Testament, specifically in the church age, at Pentecost when the Spirit comes, what we see is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that God resides in us, that we are now his temple because we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We are empowered by the Spirit, and it's not just for a few select individuals, but it's for every single believer. In fact, the Spirit is described as the seal of our salvation, the the engagement ring of promise, if you will, of, of the fact that Jesus is going to come to redeem his bride. Ephesians 1.13. Exactly. And so when we, we think about the ministry of the Spirit in the New Testament, it represents a new level of intimacy and empowerment that is because of what Christ has done on the cross. And like with anybody, we, we talk about uh, the Spirit is no longer in the body <clears throat> when it's dead. Mm-hmm. Like the church, and this is the picture we seem to be getting here with the church at uh, at Sardis, that the spirit is no longer there activating them. I use the word, uh, uh, oh, what is the word I use now? It just left me, but <laughs> animating is the yeah. word I use. Mm-hmm. The spirit is to animate us. Is that a good Good illustration. I think it is. And we have to read a little bit into the text because Jesus doesn't actually say you're dead because of X, Y, and Z. But we can do a little bit of mirror reading as far as what he's addressing. And there does seem to be a sense in which they're resting on their reputation from the past that is no longer the reality in the present. And so I like that image of, you know, it's almost like the corpse in the coffin. You know, they they may make it look good to where it almost seems like the person could be alive, but... The reality is no matter how they look on the inside or on the outside, they're still dead on the inside. And I think that's the kind of sobering, shocking language that Jesus is using to to wake them up to the seriousness of their spiritual condition. So while we're on this trail, one other passage I want to ask you about. Uh, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, he says, do not stifle, do not quench the spirit. So we who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the church is to be led by the Spirit in its members. Mm-hmm. How does that idea of quenching come along? So God is in us. We can actually quench him? Yeah, I mean, I think, I'm not sure if this illustration is even going to make much sense, but one of the things we're hearing more and more about is that a lot of people are, are listening to music too loud with their earbuds, let's just say, such that as time goes on, they actually become hard of hearing because their their music is too loud in their ears. And I think there's a, a similar comparison that we could say that that as we let other voices or other influences speak to us in a way that we're listening to that rather than the Holy Spirit, it becomes harder and harder to hear the Holy Spirit. Or, you know, to use a different illustration, that we become more calloused to the conviction of the Spirit, to the leading of the Spirit. And I think that's one of the reasons why we need Christian community. Because every one of us has blind spots. Every one of us has those dangers that we're not really attending to the ministry of the Spirit the way that we need to. And we see this in our elder council, don't we? When we're sitting down having a conversation, sometimes somebody will bring up something and you're like, yes, that's actually a really important perspective that we need to hear that uh, others of us just may not have thought of. It happened yesterday with you and me and a and uh, one of our other elders. Mm-hmm. I made a comment, and the other elder said, "Yeah, but what about this?" Mm-hmm. 
and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. It is iron sharpening iron, or maybe in that case, you know, iron sharpening wood. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm the wood, by the way. But it is fascinating to when you have a, a humble spirit and you're willing to receive what somebody, you don't always have to agree, mm-hmm. but you understand what other people are thinking. Say, so, you know, I haven't thought about it. Give me some time mm-hmm. to think about that and entering it with a humble spirit. Also realizing that I'm not always right. Uh, not always right. <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, we need to have that kind of a spirit and evaluating ourselves. I appreciate you, you mm-hmm. taking that rabbit trail with me. So let's get back here. Sure. Uh, by my reckoning, if the church at Sardis was in fact founded during the maybe the late 50s, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. uh, during perhaps Paul's second missionary journey, it would make sense that all those churches had during when he was there at Ephesus for a couple of years, mm-hmm. he was they were ministering there. It took only 35 to 40 years for this church to get to this point where Jesus is saying, you're dead. You're not alive. You have the facade of being alive, but you're dead. First of all, it's a little scary. But but secondly, what do you see as some of the key ways that churches today, Grace Baptist Church maybe, could very easily move down that path so that in 35 to 40 years— we too could be called a dead church. Mm-hmm. Is that even possible that that could happen? I think it's certainly possible. Yeah. I think as we read through these seven churches, we need to read it with the expectation this could be us. You know, we, we don't look at it and say, oh, we would never do this or that, because you think about Peter saying, Lord, I'll, I'll never deny you. And that's, <laughs> that's the last thing we'd want to do. I think the, the key word from my perspective as we come away from our study of the Church of Sardis is the word complacency. It's that idea of familiarity, comfort, a sense of confidence or even control of our circumstances or our environment that that take the initiative and effort that we should be expending and instead we, we embrace ease and comfort. And I think it's especially true, and I mentioned this on Sunday, of a church that's a, I'll call it a legacy church like Grace Baptist Church that has a strong reputation of faithfulness and ministry and discipleship, that it can be easy to then to start to spiritually coast, to rest on what we've done rather than what God wants to do now as well as in the future. And I think that requires a level of humility, a level of dependence on the Spirit, a level of of holy dissatisfaction that we are not yet where we need to be such that then corporately we are constantly pressing forward to say there are new ways to innovate. There there are greater depths of our sin that we need to confess. There is, is are people that need to be reached because that holy dissatisfaction, I think, will help guard us against the complacency that very easily can fill the void. It means leaders speaking up. Does it also not mean members, no matter who you are, Coming and asking questions, being engaged in the in the life of the local body, uh, uh, being involved in. <clears throat> we have a new a couple of new positions that we are we have mm-hmm. proposed. We're trying to fill these as mm-hmm. uh, pastoral staff. Being involved in that process, uh, taking their uh, one of their elders out to lunch or asking them <laughs> to go. You don't have to take them take them out, but all of that is important in in get, being engaged and realizing that each member of the body. It has a unique 
role that they specifically have been prepared for. Absolutely. You know, back in the day, people used to call pastors the minister, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And I think one of the dangers of that is that people assume their pastors or their elders are the ones who do the ministry. And I think one of the things that I love about Grace Baptist Church is there's this expectation that every member is a minister, that there is a one another ministry that is necessary. It's true of every church, but I feel like we we recognize that. And then it's a matter of living that out, of people taking the initiative. Because sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll look around at a church that's blessed with many people that have education or experience or insight, and they'll say, well, you don't really need me. you know, Or, well, I'm not qualified to do X, Y, or Z. And I think the danger behind that is it can lull us into a sense of complacency. It can be an excuse for us to step back rather than step forward. And I think my message to anybody who's listening is, your church needs you. If you're a part of Grace, we need you. If you're a part of another local church, they need you because God has uniquely equipped and given you experience to minister to the church to help continue to propel it forward. And speaking as an elder, I when I see that person stepping up and saying, I really feel God laid it on my heart to do this or just going and doing it, mm-hmm. what a blessing it is. And honestly, what a relief mm-hmm. sometimes it can be. Yep, absolutely. Tim, uh, Jesus's instructions to the church at Sardis are, are pretty simple. Really, four, we could break it into five, maybe six, but break it into four steps. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, and repent. None of those individually and all of them corporately aren't real hard, or so it seems. So it really seems like a back-to-the-basics approach. Mm -hmm. And if I can go a little further, this seems to be a pretty good approach for every Christian every day, doesn't it? It it does. You know, I mentioned on Sunday, many times we as Christians don't need to be instructed. We need to be reminded. The message of the gospel is one that we have to preach to ourselves every single day because we struggle with gospel amnesia, that we know what is true, but then in the moment, in the practical realities of every day, we begin to live as functional atheists. And so we have to wake up to be alert to the ways that we are, are lulled to complacency or tempted to compromise. We need to go back to the message of the gospel to remember the depth of our need and the wonder of his grace. We need to live out obedience in the context of community. And we need to repent for the ways that we haven't done that. That's a part of the rhythm of a healthy Christian life. I think that's the reason why we see similar instructions to several of these churches. Repent, remember, obey. That that mantra, if you will, is is one that's worth kind of repeating to ourselves every single day as we walk with the Lord. A one, a two, a five, a ten degree course correction every day is a lot easier than a hundred and eighty degree correction mm-hmm. six months from now. Would yep. you say? And and I would even say we ought to be expecting that we are constantly going to have to course correct for the rest of our lives. There's not a single one of us that's ever going to arrive. Sometimes what we do is we we course correct, but we overcorrect. You know, we right. were we're too legalistic, and then we become a little too uh, focused on our liberty, or we are are not uh, attending to our family enough, and then we can make an idol out of our family if we're not careful. And, and so again, there's just this recognition that none of us have arrived, 
And so we are constantly asking God to show us, to teach us, and to change us. Came across a podcast recently that I've been listening to. It's a series of interviews. And uh, <clears throat> But yesterday there was a, a gentleman, name will be familiar to many of our listeners, Trevin Wax, who has written a new book, and it's The Thrill of Orthodoxy is the name of the book. I haven't read it, and of course that's the definition of a, of a classic, right? One <laughs> book you haven't read but that you uh, recommend. Haven't read it yet, but I, I want to read it. But the... The premise, it seems, uh, based on this interview that I heard, uh, Wax is putting forth the idea that, you know, it's good to go back to the basics. It's mm-hmm. good to go back to some of these founding documents, some of these early creeds. He's talking about the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and on, on down the line, and really evaluate these people who were historically a lot closer to Jesus mm-hmm. uh, in time, on the timeline. Uh, what did the early church, what conclusions did the early church in that near proximity to Jesus time-wise, what conclusions did they reach? And uh, I thought, you know, what a great statement. Mm. Uh, we so, uh, you know, I grew up in a church where we would often recite these creeds. Mm-hmm. Great thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about that here the other day with regard to uh, the, the Holy Catholic Church, I mm. believe in. And, but the, the point there is that we don't do that enough. We, we're often looking at the next best thing, and I forget who it was who said, uh, I've taken it on myself to read alternately a dead guy's book and a living guy's mm-hmm. book. In other words, read some of the classics mm-hmm. and understand what the earlier people were dealing with. Yep, a lot of wisdom in that. Really is. So uh, then after this back to the basic, basic statement that, uh, that Jesus gives, he also calls the church to look forward to that reward of faithfulness. It reminds me that there really is nothing wrong. In fact, we're called to desire to follow God for the joy of the prize at the end. There's a, there's a, a victory prize, so to speak, a prize for faithfulness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is it selfish? to want that prize or to want that blessing? I think it could be. You know, I think we have to recognize that our, our hearts are are selfish enough that we can always twist any good thing into uh, oh, a God yes. thing in an unnecessary way. But certainly over and over again, when Jesus is speaking to these seven churches, he's offering them the prospect of reward. But it's in the context of the one who overcomes, the one who lives their life on this earth as a foreigner, who's willing to surrender the pleasures of the present, the the hopes of status or significance or security through something the world offers. He says, if you will live in this countercultural, gospel-oriented way, it will be worth it. You're going to walk with me in white. You are going to be uh, protected by me. Your name will not be blotted out because you will be secure in Christ. And so I think one of the things we need to note is that almost invariably these rewards are Christ-focused. Certainly we right. benefit from them, but it's for God's glory and for our good. And that's, I think, really what we need to keep focused on when we think about heaven, is that ultimately it is for the praise of God and his greatness that then also fulfills our deepest longings and our greatest needs. Good. Great. I think of the, uh, this momentary affliction. Yes. 
Well, Tim, as we end this episode, I want to point out to our listeners, this is the last time we're going to be recording for this season of Digging Deeper in Grace. We made that decision last December to take December as somewhat of a recording sabbatical. And we're going to follow that rhythm this year. And it just so happens that we are right now in a week during which we in the United States have set aside a day. That's this coming Thursday. We mm-hmm. call it Thanksgiving. And why don't you close out your comments today by sharing some things about our local church. We're talking about the local church. Let's end with this. Mm-hmm. Those things for which you're thankful. And then you can follow that up, if you will, with a, a couple of challenges for our congregation to consider as we end this year and move into a, a brand new year. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's remarkable to me as I think about it. it was one year ago that we concluded our ministry at our previous church and began the process of transitioning here to grace. And as I reflect on what God has done over that past year, there are so many things to be thankful for. But when it comes down to it, I'm thankful for the people because that's what the church is, right? The, the people that minister faithfully, who have invested in our family intentionally. Even when I was away, uh, several of our kids got sick, and, and so many people were checking in on, on Katie and the kids to see how are they doing, what can we do, just, just the body being the body. Grace isn't a perfect church. There's no such thing. But I do believe that it's a faithful church, and the ways I've been blessed by that, our family has been blessed, I'm so thankful for our elder team. Uh, you know, this is the the largest and most robust elder team I've ever had the privilege of being a part of, and just seeing the the sense of unity and commitment and sacrifice that that each one is willing to do. And there's some late meetings, there's some hard conversations, but in such good ways. Um, I'm just so thankful for the the staff that we have. I mean, we've been talking about staff that we want to hire, but the staff that we already have are pretty incredible. And when I think about the prospect of rounding out that team with a few other individuals, it just really continues to excite me about what God has in store for us. I'm thankful for the way that the Spirit is, is continuing to draw people to himself, whether it's some of our young people or people that are connected uh, from the community that are beginning to trust Christ and follow Christ. That's really what it's all about. It's not just going through the motions of of Sunday morning worship, but it's about being the church and living out that identity. As far as what, you know, cautions or or encouragements, I think as I said when we go through these seven churches, there's the danger of seeing our reflection in any of them. You know, I mentioned when we study the church of Ephesus that there's a danger of being so focused on truth that we lose our grip on love. I think as we looked at the church here in Sardis, there's a danger of of becoming complacent and resting on our reputation rather than pressing forward in holy dissatisfaction. I think there's always going to be the danger of, of cultural compromise, of beginning to think, well, we're better than most and kind of judging it spiritually on a curve. And so my, my urge for all of us would be that we just continue to keep our focus on what we need to, and that is Christ, the gospel, his sufficiency, the power of the spirit, and let other differences of opinion, let other preferences and, and desires be secondary to what ultimately is most important. Right. Hey, thank you. I appreciate all the time you put in on this uh, microphone uh, with me here uh, week in and week out, about twice every month, and certainly appreciate the time you devote to that. Oh, it's been a joy. Thanks, Bart. 
Well, we've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and you can access Grace Sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And might I add, you've got about a month to throw those at us, and we'd love to respond to those. So plan to join us for Season 3 as we continue our discussion of God's Word at the beginning of next year. Till we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.